Hello, and welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast about small press publishing, practices, politics, history, emails, daily goings-on, dreamings. Um, I'm Hillary Plum, and usually I'm here with Zach Peckham, but today it's just me, and I'm going to talk to Danielle Dutton, the writer and also co-founder, editor, and designer of The Dorothy Project, a small press that publishes two books a year, mostly of fiction or works about or near-ish fiction, and mostly by women, as we're going to talk about. So on this podcast, we like to give a little introduction to the terms that come up in our conversations with editors, writers, designers, critics, organizers, small press um, doers. Uh, In the conversation with Danielle, not too many uh, terms came up that wouldn't wouldn't be clear, I think, but the, here's three. One is that we talk about an advance um, on royalties. This may be familiar from lots of industries, but obviously royalties are the share um, of the profits that go to the artist. Uh, and an advance is the money you get up front, right? So if you get a $10,000 advance, then you start getting paid again on your book when it's sold out <laughs> to the amount that works out to $10,000 on whatever percentage you get. Maybe that's 6% on the cover price, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 25% if it's an ebook. Um, the rates of the, the percentage of the royalties varies a bit depending on the type of publisher. And also sometimes there's different tiers based on whether it's just off the cover price or if it includes kind of a different rate for books sold on deep discount. That's an innovation that's happened in publishing since the rise of Amazon. Now so many books are sold for a more than 50% discount. We have to like change how we do things. Um, and the advances range really quite a lot in size. So we talk about um, with, with Danielle in relation to Dorothy um, that there's when they started out, there were very small advances of a few hundred dollars, which is very common in small press publishing, or there might be no advance, or it might be up to like $1,000. In big publishing, advances get pretty huge. Uh, for example, the Obamas received a $65 million advance for their two most recent books. So that's the kind of scale and contrast we're talking about. So advance and royalties are our first term. Our next is that we talked about big five and big four publishing. And big five publishing, you may have heard this term, is a way to refer to the five remaining major New York publishing firms kind of after a few decades of consolidation. Um, there's now kind of five big <laughs> piles of publishers remaining. These all um, belong to multinational media corporations. Uh, so a lot of the, you know, kind of old school publishers or imprints you may know, like Knopf or Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, all of these now are housed in big fives, uh, although I mean, a few are still independent. But for example, Knopf is part of Penguin Random House, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux is part of Macmillan, etc. So um, the big five are our major corporate publishers based in New York, um, and they are Hachette, HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's media company, Macmillan, which is owned by Holtzbrink, Simon & Schuster, which is owned by Paramount Global, and Penguin Random House, which is owned by Bertelsmann, a German company. So the reason we talk about Big Five slash Big Four is at the time of this conversation between me and Danielle, Penguin Penguin Random House (laughs) was toward the end of a two-year process trying to buy Simon & Schuster, which would have made the big five into the big four. And just for context, 
This is a kind of corporate consolidation that's been happening across lots of industries. There used to be a Big 10, a Big 12, a Big 14, et cetera. Um, so, you know, this will be familiar to you from other arts and, you know, general industries as well, um, fewer and fewer companies. However, the Biden administration's Department of Justice sued to block that merger. So they won the, you know, the they won the initial case in October 2022. Um, the judge ruled uh, on behalf of the government, right, saying that this merger would harm uh Basically, authors' pay was the major argument, was that authors would no longer be able to um, have as many publishers competing for their work, so it would affect their pay. Uh, in November 2022, so uh, which was like just after my conversation with Danielle, uh, Paramount Global uh, accepted that outcome and kind of withdrew from the deal. So they declined to fight it, and uh, this consolidation was blocked. So the big five were going to become the big four, we're kind of in the murk of that for a while. They're back to the big five now, and we'll see what happens next. Maybe by the time that this uh, podcast is released, something else will have happened. Um, but Penguin Random House is is the largest of the big five. It's very dominant. Um, as the name suggests, it used to be two companies, Random House and Penguin. So they are already part of a merger. Um, and uh, as you may remember, a lot of people in publishing wanted them to go with the name Random Penguin, but they did not. So the other thing we talk about is just the front list and the back list. This is just kind of a publishing jargon term. So the front list are just like the the new books that season. They are your newest books. Um, and the back list are all of the other books that you've ever published. So it, it sounds pejorative or as though the back list is like, not as important or something, but it really isn't. It's just descriptive as to like which are the newest books that you are in the kind of absolute crux of the promotion cycle with and which are your all your other books. And, you know, for any publisher, it's very important the backlist have a lot of strong titles that keep selling, right? So, but the front list also is at a kind of delicate and precious moment, which is that only when things are new can they get that kind of a whole bunch of reviews, uh, all of that kind of all of these opportunities happen when books are new. Um, publishing is very obsessed with the new. Like a, if a book is a year old, there just isn't going to be the same kind of interest and energy around it in a lot of ways if it didn't get that already, right? If it got that already, it might last for several years. There's books you see continuing to be bestsellers for years. But for the most part, the front list is kind of in um, in its like moment of being born and released. Um, and is getting kind of the major push from whatever whatever its publisher is um, into the market, into review venues, to critics' hands, to readers' groups, whatever it is. So um, that's the front list and the back list. Um, but yeah, it's not a negative to say something's on the back list. It just describes that it is not the newest book. All right, that's all I have for you index-wise today. Um, here's my conversation with Danielle. My questions are a little like long and chewy and you should take sure. them wherever you'd like to go. Um, okay. So Dorothy's model is to publish two books a year, usually in fall. And I think on the same day, um, mostly by women and to quote your website, mostly works of fiction or near fiction or writing about fiction. And if I've done my math right, I think we're now at 13 years and 26 books. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, to quote from, from your description of the press, uh, the press works to pair books that draw upon different aesthetic traditions, 
because a large part of our interest in literature lies in its possibilities, its endless stylistic and formal variety, end quote. So I'd love to ask you a little about each of these components of the press and your work as co-founder, editor, and designer. To start, I wanted to invite you to talk about the two books you've just released by returning author Amina Kane and debut author Giada Scodolero. Um, what excites you about these two books? Anything you'd like to share about how these manuscripts made their way to you? What helped you decide, yes, these are the next Dorothy books? Um, and I'm curious too, if there are moments in the acquisition or editorial process when you're thinking particularly, particularly about how books might be paired and how each year's front list will kind of contribute to that aesthetic breadth and formal and experimental variety that is the press's project. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Thank you. That's a great question. So many parts. So you have, you'll have to remind me if I forget to answer parts of your question. Um, so I'll just start with really straightforward how Amina and Jada's books came to us. Um, so totally different paths because Amina was already a Dorothy author. We published Creature in really early. It was, um, I think our third year. So 2012, maybe, um, her story collection. And then um, I've just, I'm a huge fan of Amina's writing and have been for a long time. And I, Amina published an essay at the Paris Review Daily years ago, like 2016 or something that I was completely in love with. Like it talked about writing in ways that really spoke to me as a writer. And I found it super interesting. And I taught it a bunch of different times. And it was kind of about what happens, Amina and I are both really interested in the visual in our writing and in our reading um, and in relationships between writing, fiction, and visual art. And, and we both coincidentally went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, or maybe not coincidentally, but we didn't know each other there. Um, I think it was a few years after her. Anyway, I totally loved this essay. And I said in an interview shortly after it was published that, you know, the about fiction part of our description, like I didn't know what that meant when I made it up um, and I didn't know what it would ever be. But I said in this interview, so this is years ago now, that if there was going to be an about fiction that we published, it would be something like this essay Amina wrote um, that was published in the Paris Review. So I think from, from the very beginning, I was like, Amina, write that book. Um, and so, you know, over the years, she wrote that book and um, she sent it to us and we can talk about what it looked like and what we did with it and all of that. But um, we, you know, it was almost a no brainer that we were going to publish that book when it was ready. Um, so that's how the Amina book came to us. Um, Amina's first nonfiction book, A Horse at Night. And then Jada's book came to us over the transom in one of our, we open for reading, um, once a year for just two weeks in September, usually, um, because we can't actually handle, because we're so small, more than the number of submissions we would get in that window. Um, so I understand it's not always convenient for people, but like we just literally cannot handle more than that. Um, so they came in over the transom and it was very different from what her book wound up being, but there was just something about the project that I immediately recognized and loved. And um, we eventually, we actually <laughs> sent it back to her with a request for her to do something different just to the submission. Um, she she resubmitted, I think we asked, you know, we, we only accept 20 pages pasted into the body of an email, also very weird to a lot of people, but because it's just because I really just need to see your prose at first. And then it's, I, you know, the other stuff is comes later for me. 
Um, so we had asked her to see if we could see more. She sent it, and then we asked her to do something to that. She resubmitted re it, and um, we were just super interested. So we made a, an appointment to talk to her over Zoom. This must have been during the pandemic, and I mean, it would have been over Zoom anyway because she's in New York and we're in St. Louis. But um, I feel like Zoom opened up all these possibilities. Before um, we, it was Skype. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I never did that. Um, it's just like my life is so different um, having Zoom in it, it for good and for ill. Um, so anyway, we talked to Jada and we basically said, we think you need to do X, Y, Z to this book. Like it just doesn't feel done. It hasn't finished baking or whatever. Um, but we're pretty in love with what's here. Are you interested in writing a bunch more stuff and doing more to it? And if you are, we'll sign it. We'll sign a contract with you now, you know, um, cause we don't want to ask someone to do all that work without, we wouldn't ask it if we weren't like completely serious about our interests. Um, and we like sort of taking risks and seeing what's going to happen with things. So anyway, that's how, and um, by the way, she blew us away. Like, I actually think it's such a horrible request in a way. Like if someone did that to me, I feel like I could totally buckle under the pressure of that request. But she came back with all this new material that was as good and better than anything that had been there before. So it was kind of amazing. And she's been a total delight to work with. So it's her debut book. Um, and before, before she'd only published one thing um, in the white review. So that was one part of your question. And then you're talking about the pairing. Yeah, the pairing, if there were, I mean, I can uh, imagine some things based on what you said about pairing a debut author with someone who's mm -hmm. returning, but I didn't know yep. if there were um, kind of certain sorts of aesthetic thoughts you find yourself having as you make those pairings. Well, so we, that was really clear at the beginning um, when Dorothy didn't have a track record or a backlist, you know, um, and so it was like each year was like this whole entirely new thing. And we were sort of trying to figure out each year what it meant. And so like our very first books, Event Factory by Renee Gladman, and, um, you know, a poet slash prose writer's first work of fiction, according to her. And then um, Barbara Coleman's is Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, this like 1954 grotesque parlor novel. And they're coming from different traditions, but they're both so weird and wonderful and delightful. And so um, putting those together was like a really obvious move in that direction. And we were hoping, you know, people who came interested in Renee Gladman might read Barbara Coleman's and vice versa. It was just this kind of utopian idea that we would get people, you know, cross reading across their usual, I don't know, comfort zones or something. Um, and I think that worked sometimes. Um, people would reach out and say so, and that was really neat. But as it's gone on, it, you kind of referred to this earlier, it, it's taken on a different sort of meaning, which is like, it's not just about the pairing of the two books anymore. It's like, what does the list need now? Or what, like, what does the list not need now is often a big thing. Like there have been years where we've been like, no more French books or um because we've or for a while because we've had like french books for three years in a row or something um and then there have been years where we've been like no more funny surreal short stories for a while because it was just you know there it was like a little pattern was developing and we just wanted it we want the list to be like more unexpected and lively than that so that's part of it too that's great i mean it's true too that like when you pu publish one fantastic French book or fantastic work of funny surreal, you know, people then send you, you know, yes, a bunch of, right. and you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And the thing um, that's hard, I mean, the thing I hate most about doing the press is rejecting people. Um, I hate that. I hate being rejected too. <laughs> so, um, but it is, it's true that like, you know, we get great work. It's just not what the list needs right mm -hmm. then. And we're not interested in having, you know, like years out, we're not interested in taking work like for three years in a row or something like, you know, 
having our season set that early. We want to stay more like it, we want it to feel a little fresher than that for us. And, and so we wind up having to reject a lot of work. That's really great. Cause it's just not what we need right now, you know? Um, and we're only doing two books a year. So yeah. 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 Um, well, I wanted to ask about, uh, the project of publishing kind of almost entirely works by women. Um, and the way that Dorothy identifies itself as a feminist press. Um, and I think you and I are of the same generation of, of women writers and editors. And um, I know you've talked about some of the origins of this and other interviews that you've given, um, where we kind of came of age, I think, during an era of experimental literature that was pretty heavily male and, and masculinist. Um, and at that time, you know, I'll kind of give my summary and of course, feel free to <laughs> disagree or depart or whatever, you know, it felt like in that kind of space, 15-ish to 20-ish years ago, maybe 10-ish to 20 years ago, you know, experimental literary scenes and formulations didn't include work by women as much um, or other, you know, people belonging to diverse and underrepresented genders. And often it seemed like kind of undervalued ideas or practices of, of the experimental that um, didn't fit the sort of conventionally male experimental ideal. And you know, when I was writing this question, I was like, it sounds strange to say uh, conventionally experimental. I was like, but that's what I mean. That's what I like felt like um, at, at the time. And there was a sort of modernist inflected idea of the experimental um, to which women's write writing wasn't as readily seen as belonging or maybe celebrated for its formal intensities that they didn't sort of fit some patterns. Um, and, you know, while talking about this, I want to make sure to like pause and praise, especially like your first two books, Attempts at a Life and Sprawl, which I love so much um, oh, and which were, <laughs> they were so inspiring coming out at that time, you know, as a reader and writer coming out at that time to be like, okay, all right, <laughs> this can all happen. Um, Thank you. And I think, you know, that was true for many people. Um and, you know, we've also seen sort of in that era, you know, early 2000s to maybe early 2010s or so, there was kind of a robust indie lit scene, you know, small presses, lit blogs, online venues that were focusing on indie lit, um, which at the time was often called like alt lit. Obviously, this is before we started using the term alt right. <laughs> in the US, it was coming out of like alternative rock of the 90s, you know, anti-corporate credo kind of thing. Um, and those you know, venues and scenes did feature experimental and, and international lit, but again, they tended to skew male. Um, so just to kind of give that context uh, and say, you know, I definitely appreciate the context in which like in relation to prose and to the experimental, a feminist writer and editor would be called to make an explicitly feminist, right, publishing project. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was reading an interview with you um, in the CLMP from a couple years ago. Um, and maybe I'll just quote a little bit of that here. Cause I have like sort of a follow-up question, um, about that, um, which was that, you know, you said at that time, quote, I haven't always had the best experiences with male colleagues or bosses throughout my life. And then the vast majority of people who have pushed back against my authority when I've been in a position of authority have been men. I wanted to collaborate with writers to build relationships with them. And that seemed more like a thing I could productively imagine doing with other women. But there was also this aesthetic and cultural side to the decision, which was complicated in its own way from seeing how few women submitted their work to Dalkey Archive Press, where you used to work, to having heard a lot of misogynistic crap about female authors over the years, to wanting to create a space that seemed to be missing in the literary world, to the simple fact that most of my writers, favorite writers are and always have been women, um, end quote. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to ask you, 
about your work, you know, and experience so far in this 13 years as a feminist publisher. Um, and particularly if there were practices of publishing or like ways that you structure the press and it's kind of working so that you've come to feel are part of its feminist ethos. Um, I was thinking about like, are there types of moments in which one thinks mm -hmm. like, oh, this feels to me like a feminist <laughs> press <laughs> or this feels to me like toward feminism. Yeah. <laughs> like anything from inviting submissions, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, one thing we could say certainly is that you're open to people setting submit, you know, to aspects of the editorial process, to like hand mailing the books, to like mm -hmm. ways you approach correspondence or yeah. email or internships, just kind of anything that comes to mind that you that maybe has fallen into that framework over the years. Mm -hmm. So you've come to think as part of that ethos. I don't know. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, first of all, your summary of that period we came up in was great, perfect, um, put so much better than I feel like I ever put it myself. Um, it's funnily not a thing I always feel super comfortable talking about, um, even, but you completely get it. So I wouldn't have had to have explained it to you. Um, but, you know, I was just at a school to try and explain what this was like, the 90s and the aughts to like a bunch of young writers. And, you know, it's like it's ancient history to them. Um, but that's absolutely what the press was born out of. And there were people like, you know, um, Christian at Tarpaulin Sky being super supportive of experimental women writers and Joelle McSweeney, me, Jenny Woolley, um, others, you know. So there were there were places. It was just not as much a part of the mainstream experimental literature conversation um, as it feels like it absolutely is now for whatever reason, um, reasons. So, um, okay, that question though about, yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. I have to think, because so, I don't, I haven't thought about it in these terms before, but as soon as you say that, I think, um, so there's certain things we do, like, um, I really want to feel like Dorothy's kind of a family, um, and I don't want to feel like that's a cheesy thing to say. And so there are ways, that would be one more way in which I probably feel safer doing that with women than I would with male writers. I'm not saying I wouldn't, it's just probably, you know, there's this likelihood and like going back to the thing you quoted. Yeah. I have not always felt safe, um, with men in, around me in my life. And so there's like this really personal and even private part of this decision at Dorothy. Um, and then, um, so like we always send all the books to our writers um, and Wave Books does this too. But this is this is one way that for Dorothy that feels like we're constantly, we want everyone to feel included as the press moves on, you know? Um, so that's one thing. And then um, I, I haven't always managed this actually because um, there was a period of time where the submissions were out of control with what I could handle, which is I figured out how to handle it. But um, another thing is that we do get back to everybody. And I want, it's really important to me that the, the response to every single person who submits just be kind. Um, I'm not interested in that sort of like, those like horrible rejection notes people sometimes share on Twitter where someone just like obnoxiously tells you what's wrong with your writing. I just feel like that's wholly unnecessary. And I just want to respect everyone's practice and what they're interested in and just thank them for submitting, even though it just didn't work out. Um, so I would say these are some of the things that feel maybe part of that feminist ethos. Um, 
I don't know, they might sound small, but it's like, well, Dorothy is really small. So even the small things are sort of a big part of what we do. And then, yeah, like hand delivering all of the books, like hand packaging them, it, that this is actually coming to an end. And I feel really sad about it oh. for this very reason, because it's felt like um, labor in a really, like almost de- literally domestic labor because it's uh, it's in our house. Um, and so, and it's me and my husband and, you know, we go down into the basement and get books and pack them and take them to the post office. And I see who's buying the books and it sort of like, it's kind of exhausting, but like also heartening and it feels, makes it feel like a real community, but the list has gotten so big that we simply can't keep up with the orders anymore with also our full-time jobs and like having a family and all the other things we need to be doing. Um, and I feel, yeah, really sad about that loss for exactly the reason that you're talking about. But I also, we also just can't, literally cannot do it anymore. So that's probably going to be ending within the next month or two. Oh, wow. I mean, it totally makes sense, (laughs) but it's so, there's something so nice about being like, I know who ordered. I know. (laughs) It is, it is. And I really do regret it. I feel sorry about it. Um, And then I think the other thing maybe that's in line with all of this, and then I'll stop talking, is how we've always tried to encourage people to buy multiple books um, through package, like grouped sales, um, like buy any six or buy all of them together, or even buy the two together each year. Um, And to me, that is like, again, this sort of, for me, this feeling of like wanting, I don't want any book left behind. Like I, and I want to encourage the books to be read as a conversation, like between books and between writers. Um, So like chatty and conversational and inclusive and warm feeling. And so I guess all of that is in there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was wondering, um, you kind of alluded to this, uh, to sort of the change in the context of being like an experimental women writer or publishing experimental women's writing. Um, I just was curious kind of what you've noticed um, in this 13 years as a feminist publisher, like, uh, you know, what has like illuminated that task and mission, whether that's like ways that you feel like the literary culture and conversation have changed a little, like ways you seen people respond to Dorothy's work or kind of respond to ideas of of feminist writing, um, Mm -hmm. ways your own sense of the mission has maybe has like shifted in focus or adapted in different ways along the way. I just was curious kind of like of the sort of breadth and longevity of that and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. how one goes from the context in which we like start the press to like ongoingly into the, into the present. Yeah. I mean, in a way, in in fundamental ways, our mission has not changed. Um, and so we're just still the same ethos and we're still doing the same basic thing. Um, practically, a lot has changed, right? But um, in terms of the spirit of the project, it hasn't really changed that much. Um, but in terms of things I've noticed, like funnily, when we announced the press, you know, and we first made our like first call for submissions, which I don't even remember how we did that because I don't think we were on social, any social media or anything, um, but somehow we did it. The first year or two, the vast majority of submissions were from male writers. Um, so that was sort of funny, even though it was like a feminist press and it says like mostly by women always on our website, we still had mostly male writers submitting. And, and I wasn't like opposed to publishing, um, writing from anyone, you know, I just, it was just interesting that that happened. And now like, you know, there'll be like 
in each submission open reading period, we'll maybe get one or two male writers. And I'm, I'm, it's fine. It's like, it, they're not, not allowed to submit. Um, but it's just interesting how like completely identified the press has become with women's writing. Um, and so that's one change, but I also like, I think something that happened along the way that I was made me really happy was how many sort of young male writers I felt became champions of the press, people I didn't know, um, but who would regularly review books or would really like were out there on social media, um, really promoting Dorothy's books and seemed like really earnest, true readers of the books. Um, and that's been really neat because it's like sometimes when people do stuff like that you wonder if it's like in in the literary world or any world I guess if they're sort of if people are sometimes doing things to like make a good impression so um you know because they want something from this press but there was really nothing to be gotten especially the longer we've gone on and haven't really started publishing male writers um so it was just like true enthusiasm and support I thought that I think that's been really nice um but also something, I don't know exactly what it's on good. It's fine. Cause I'm not in charge of the culture, but I don't know what has shifted entirely to make it such that I don't feel the sense anymore that those experimental writing spaces are predominantly male. Um, it's just movement away from certain things, I think, and movement toward other things as well. Um, and, and certain presses that have come along, um, yeah, but it's it just doesn't feel true anymore. And so sometimes I'll be like, does, does, does the world need Dorothy anymore? Um, but then I do think the world does still need Dorothy. Um, <laughs> so and sometimes we we do stop and think, like, what do we offer? Like, what do we need to be doing? Um, so, you know, the mission is still there. But like, really, it's like weird books. You know, it's not just books by women. It's like weird books. So um yeah, I think the the culture still needs us for now. I think it's like weirdly, I would say maybe we need more weird, you know, like the space for weird books has maybe contracted over that 13 mm. years, even if there's become more space for um, mm -hmm. you know, women's writing to be more prominent, et cetera. I feel like mm -hmm. uh some of the you know, some of the reason that at least for me, I feel like I no longer think like, oh, that, you know, that space, which used to feel so kind of masculinist or didn't really include, um, you know, women or feminist writing. I'm like, oh, it just doesn't exist anymore. Like, mm -hmm. like some of those scenes and venues and, and stuff are gone. Um, you know, and my next question is, is kind of, is about small press life, um, which is sort of related to that right ways that, um, you know, small press work is discussed and recognized and supported and kind of where it happens. Um, and, and, you know, Dorothy is a small press, obviously. Um, it publishes two books a year, which is um, a, like a beautifully small, like kind of the perfect very small, small list. <laughs> it's a small, small press. Um, and it's, well, you know, what, what we might call an editor-run publisher, right? The people who edit the books, um, you and, and Martin Riker, are also the people making the publishing decisions and doing that daily operations work. Um, it involves, you know, I will assume a fair amount of volunteer labor by its editor-publishers, um, as is very usual in the small press structure where it's often kind of unpaid labor by the editor and publisher. Um, so, but also you've done a pretty, I would say awe-inspiring job of reaching a wider audience for Dorothy books, um, which get, you know, regular kind of major review coverage, which is so hard for small presses to get. Um, and then a few early Dorothy writers maybe have gone on to have some quote unquote bigger, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> New York books, um, like Mel Zink is an example 
or have received kind of new forms of recognition for their really kind of distinctive work over time, like Renee Gladman, um, who you mentioned, who's since received awards like the Wyndham Campbell Prize and, and maybe sort of her like kind of very original distinct work is starting to, you know, mm -hmm. gradually be recognized by folks. Um, you know, but for our, the rest of us, you know, in the small press world, we're always super impressed, but you know, we're, we're like, Dorothy, like, gets the books to readers and has reviews and, and reception. Um, so, th I mean, I think it's incredible. So I kind of wanted to ask you, um, like, what the small and small press means to you these days, you know, where, um, and, and I had two contexts I was thinking about, you can add more to, but one was about fiction um, or prose, because in the U.S., you know, small press culture has tended to be more poetry focused, and our sense maybe of small press practice and politics has tended to be defined a little bit more in terms of poetry and aesthetic movements in poetry. Um, and second, maybe ways that you've seen, you know, those more mainstream literary venues or bigger presses or literary culture relate to Dorothy's successes and to small press work. Otherwise, maybe, you know, including your own work, if you like, um, you know, for me, when I've kind of witnessed or participated in moments when a small press author kind of, uh, you know, goes big, right. Kind of, um, I'm both, you know, I get really excited. I feel like celebrating that that person is going to have a wider platform and reach and it's going to move more people and influence kind of a wider swath of culture. And it, it's a, it's an exciting moment, but at the same time, oh, and I'm interested to collaborate with like editors elsewhere. Right. And frankly, with like sales teams, <laughs> like <laughs> which is something <laughs> they have that we don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's also like often some degree of like maybe more frustrating dynamics or commentary that happen where the work of the small press gets a little bit like dismissed or sometimes like a little disdained or fetishized in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in reality, like big publishing knows about this work because sort of we supported it when they passed it over. Um, and, you know, we, an editor like you did like an incredible job and found readers and critics, help people like learn how to talk about this book, kind of built that interest and passion um, and did all that using our kind of much more limited resources and, and our narrower access to the market. But sometimes the commentary sort of has like the reverse vibe where it's like the big presses discovered them like in spite of us or our smallness mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than because of us or something. Um, and I think of that, you know, the New Yorker did this, like that big profile on Nell Zink, which was really nice, but had this like tiny moment where they like critiqued the small advance at Dorothy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I find those moments like so like stunning and churlish sort of, you know, cause you're like, okay, like the, the finances at a small press often extend like pretty directly from the, <laughs> from one's own personal, but you know, mm -hmm. so it's sort of like, one's personal finances and our work at our day jobs, you know, and you're like, okay, like you all like have a corporation that buys your books and that pays a salary. Like we're, we're doing it in our basements and out of our um, own money. And, you know, so it's pretty strange for you to like critique us for like not personally being richer or like not being able to donate even more money and labor, you know, like, so, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a like more particularly negative example. There's sort of like a range of dynamics. So I was, um, you know, that's my own kind of take on those moments. So I was just, I was curious, you know, you have this particular lens onto um, how big five, maybe now big four, we'll see um, publishing kind of view small presses, um, which I'm guessing includes really positive collaborative experiences and other experiences that kind of point up the difference between what they're doing and what we're doing in the small 
suppressing. So I'll mm-hmm. stop there with my um my own take on the context and just kind of ask you what that small and small press means to you in relation to fiction and in relation to Dorothy. Um, mm-hmm. Anything that that word kind of yeah comes comes up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. I don't even think about it as a word anymore. It's just like it just is the word that comes between before press in terms of like pretty much every press I'm interested in. It's just like goes there. Um, I don't think too much about size or smallness as like a concept um, because you really can't get smaller than Dorothy, but um, I still feel like we've had an outsized effect for the actual smallness that Dorothy is. Um, And so, I mean, I suppose you could have just one person instead of two, Um, but we're basically as small as it gets. So um, I don't think of it as pejorative. I just like never even think of it. And if someone else thinks that, that's fine. What they can think, whatever they want. Um, it's just like this marker. Um, that thing in the New Yorker really pissed me off. Um, yeah, it was like a joke. It wasn't even just that they mentioned it. It was a joke. And I was like, are you kidding me? We had done an incredible job with that book. Um if I do say so myself. Um, and the fact that it had a New Yorker profile that the author did like a few months, you know, six months, I don't know, after the book came out from this teeny tiny press is obviously evidence of that. Um, so yeah, it it's one thing to just talk about the economics of small press realities, but it's another thing to like make a joke about it. Um, and at the time, I mean, actually also the funny thing is like our royalties are better than we give more in royalties um, in our contracts than you would get with a commercial press probably. Um, and so, you know, in the long run, authors are going to make money off their books. We just, especially back then we, you know, we give bigger advances now, but um, this was early years and I think it was our third year. I don't know. Um, yeah, we simply had did not have money. Um, we could not have given more money in exactly the way you're explaining. Anyway, I mean, the thing is, I think we've actually, I actually don't know. I, I'm pretty out of touch with what's going on in like, quote, big publishing um, in large part because I live in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and so I'm just not like mixing in commercial publishing circles, which I'm sure just even just being a writer, if I lived in New York, I would have lots of friends who worked at major publishing houses and I would just know more about how they work or how they see small presses, but I just don't. Um, And so I don't have people at big presses calling me up, telling me what they think about us or anything. So, but I mean, by and large, it's funny because I still think of big presses, like I still think of New Directions as like big, big as in major, you know, but I recognize that they're like an indie press. but I, but mostly our interactions with like individual humans in corporate publishing have been super positive and supportive and complimentary. Um, I think there's, it's just a system that's not built to operate the way that the small press publishing system operates. And so even if there are people there who would, who would wish they could publish like my books or the books we publish at Dorothy, they simply cannot. That's just not what, how, what the system is built to do. Um, and a couple of times I've known people who have done it and they don't work there anymore. You know, um, it's just not how the system works. So yeah, I don't have any feeling of like, I don't have bad feelings or animosity. You know, it's just a system that kind of has, it almost feels like it has nothing to do with the system I'm operating in, except that it does, except we're doing the exact same thing um, just on different scales. Um, so yeah, we, we still have to compete with all the big presses for review coverage um, and 
for printing times, you know, like it takes us a long time to get a Dorothy book printed because we are way at the bottom of the whatever food chain there, stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, we're definitely like the second class citizen in terms of this, how the system works in a way. But then at the same time, we feel like we've benefited from so much kindness and interest from people and on in so many different sectors of publishing. So um, yeah, it has its challenges being super small, but it's just part of the work, but it just feels like part of the job to me, you know, not like something we rail against or spend too much time thinking about. We just need to plan like really far in advance so that we get our books printed in time. <laughs> um, Cause we're not, we're not going to get the quick turnaround for example, stuff like that. Yeah. Your questions have so many parts. I feel like I'm not fully answering them. I'm just like, who could? Yeah, I can't. <laughs> wandering far afield. Yeah. That's why I'm asking you, because I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> um, I guess I'm like, I I have a question written down, but what you just said made me think it's like I know um you guys just shifted distribution. You are at SPD, a small press distribution, um, and now are with the New York Review books, which seems like a lovely fit. Um, and I'm thinking too, you know, so that's a change that um, you know, hopefully will help like contribute toward longevity and, you know, all of the things that one needs as a press continues. I'm sort of curious, it's like, you know, if you've seen or are seeing like the economics um, shift at all, you know, in the last few years, I mean, obviously the, um, the delays in printing and supply chain stuff has hit publishing. Um, I don't know about, it seems like, you know, the, the printing timescales were already something that you were facing you know for the presses where I work at we were like under we were like below the radar of it and then it suddenly did hit and everything was mm -hmm. like so late <laughs> like yeah um and couldn't happen and um so no it was definitely the pandemic that made it super clear where we fit in the structure <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Like, oh okay this is gonna yeah. take like 400 percent as long yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> um all right I'll adjust my life accord you know like yeah um and I'm, I'm, I don't have an answer to this one either, but I'm sort of curious. It's like, we saw in the, in the, you know, beginning of the pandemic of like a further consolidation of just like Amazon's like total rise. Um, and we've had, you know, obviously at first this merger from the big five to the big four that's attempted, that it seems like the Biden administration is trying to block. So we both have like that same corporate, you know, consolidation trend that's been going on so long. And we also, but it seems like we are starting to have some forms of like pushback against it or something where like, you know, the unionization efforts at Amazon and elsewhere, or kind of a, a new resistance to its dominance in our, at least theoretical resistance to its dominance in our life. Um, that's like a long intro into just kind of like wondering, um, <laughs> you know, where you find yourself in those kind of, those, some of these ongoing economic questions, which maybe also are a little bit like cultural questions. Um, and maybe like a better way to ask that is just like, what helps you keep going with your work for Dorothy? Um, is there ways that you see the, like the, like that kind of promise of small press work, um, and collaborative literary work, like continuing to be sustaining or finding new, Mm -hmm. um, forms for itself. 
in this context, which is like changing, but also more of the same. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. A lot of your questions, I feel like Marty would be better at answering because he's really the publisher, you know, like he really does most of the business stuff. Um, And I do, we, I mean, because we're so tiny, we both kind of do bits of both, but, um, and he worked in publishing for so long before too at Dalkey. Um, He was the associate director there for like 12 or 13 years or something. So, um, okay. But yeah, I mean, we, well, this is not really, I guess this is still an economic question in a way, but we do see no, no, there's no feeling that we're going to stop. Um, right now, because we really, even though it's super time consuming, we really do love doing this work. Um, and really all the parts of it, even the parts we have to let go of, like hand delivering to the post office, you know, um, we, there are ways we love it. We just like literally can't, um, anymore, but yeah, it feels, it feels like a sustaining practice in and of itself in a way, like it sustains me to have these conversations and to have this work to do that still feels like really valuable to me. Um, and it, when I'm, you know, feeling it's easy, very easy as a writer to feel like, what am I doing? You know, like, what is the point of this? But I don't really feel like that as an editor or publisher person. I feel like really proud of the work and excited about it. And it feels important to me to get all of these writers their work into the world and to help do that like the best way we possibly can feels like totally valuable to me. Um, even though it's, yeah, we don't get paid for it or anything like that. Um, it's volunteer work, as you said. Um, I'm trying to think like, I'm trying to think of the different parts of your question. I mean, so we actually had a really good year during the pandemic. Um, people bought a lot of books directly from us that happened. I feel like we had like a really good year that first year, like people were just home buying books or something. Um, and social media, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this as Twitter seems to be like falling down around us. You know, um, I've been really thinking a lot about like, wow, I thought, you know, it's really easy to just be like, ugh, social media. Um, and I'm not really on it as an individual. So I don't have the same, maybe some of the same yuck that other people have because I'm really only on it as Dorothy. Um, and I have, I actually do have like capitalist or commercial reasons to be on there. Um, and so it's been kind of amazing. I realize, and it, and it's not only that, of course, it's also, there is actually like feelings of community. And I learn a, about a lot of books and different things. I writers, I wouldn't know about, you know, um, or issues that I just otherwise wouldn't come across. Um, now I'm just talking about Twitter, but yeah, I think, I do think social media has been really important in helping sustain a business like Dorothy. And I'm like worried that it's just going to go away. Um, because yeah, it's like how we're getting the word out about the books. And I feel like during the pandemic, there was like this even greater push of like support small presses. Like it just felt like it ballooned during the first year of the pandemic. Um, and yeah, we did really well. We sold a lot of books. Um, so that was great. And then moving to NYRB as our distributor has been amazing. And um, we definitely, they are definitely helping us sell more books, mostly because we now have sales reps who are, we're, we're in the NYRB catalog and we've never had it. Like you said, a sales team, we've never had a sales reps before actually like pushing the books into bookstores that we aren't already in. Like we have great, amazing relationships with lots of booksellers and bookstores. But when I say lots, you know, I mean, it feels like a lot that we're, that's a lot like we're excited about, but there are so many more bookstores that we've never been in and we don't know anyone there. Um, so 
definitely the books are getting into more people's hands and that's what really matters. So in a way we have, we do actually have a much bigger platform, like to use the word you used earlier than we did before we were with NYRB, which is amazing for the books. Um, I feel like I forgot what the question was, but I mean, Dorothy is pretty self-sustaining now. So it wasn't at first, it was like literally our money that we, you know, we didn't have like huge, it wasn't like inherited wealth, you know, it was that we were out of grad school and we had full-time jobs and we were like, let's start a press. <laughs> um, and so at first it was just our like salaries um, sustaining the press, but now Dorothy sustains itself. So, but not paying, in, it does not pay salaries. So it wouldn't be able to sustain salaries and, and keep reprinting books and printing new books and all of that other stuff. Yeah. Um, you did such a good job answering that completely like, oh, good. ballooning I question. Got one. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I think that question was about everything in a way. Um, <laughs> thinking about, you know, that, you know, when you're talking about social media and how in a way it's been such a useful tool, right. For, for small presses and for writers outside of, um, certain other kinds of structures, um, to learn about each other's work and to connect and connect with readers and to connect with independent booksellers and those things. And I was thinking too, you know, just hooking that back up with um, our earlier conversation about, you know, literary scenes and venues and online stuff of the aughts, you know, mm -hmm. like where you're like, oh, then it all vanished. And then you're like, well, you know, like when Twitter vanishes, like what replaces Twitter, you know, like yeah. that's the thing where you're like, okay, like fine, it'll go. But like, what will replace, you know, like, yeah, like all of these things seem so ephemeral, um, but we've come to rely on them and we kind of learn to like flow our projects and our kind of cultural work through whatever these um, yeah. online possibilities are, but they kind of have, for being some of the biggest companies in the world, they have like no, no structure or stability. <laughs> like, well, so, when I was, yeah. when I was saying before that, like things have changed in the culture, some things have changed that have also somehow like shifted this sort of more masculine or masculinist um, vibe and aesthetic and just actuality um, over the past like 20 years or whatever. Um, I do actually think Twitter's been part of that. Like I, I feel like I'm following so many super funny, smart young women writers and they just, you know, they're, they're making space and there just wasn't that it just wasn't happening like that. There were blogs, but you had to go to them. Right. And mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. um, it's just so different than having it all like flowing in front of your face. I'm sure it's like messing up our brains or something, but it's very convenient. Um, well, maybe to like follow up on that sort of like forward, youthful looking, youthful facing question. <laughs> um, I think about, so, you know, I work at the CSU Poetry Center and we are kind of, you know, officially a teaching press, right? We have um, graduate students for us. Um, and part of our mission and role is to try to keep teaching the work of editing and publishing and book production and all, you know, kind of every stage to sort of make visible what we're doing and what the task is and what context it's taking place in and what skills it involves in these things. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, I know that Dorothy also has some kind of ha has interns and some relationship with um, maybe your own teaching or could also be kind of how you think about your work as a teacher of writing and as an editor and publisher. Um, so I just wanted to kind of ask you about those relationships of like Dorothy and teaching or how teaching relates to editing and publishing or what kind of teaching can happen in editing and publishing. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, just anything about your approach to. Yeah, that. well, we, we do have interns 
but that's been our only sort of connection to the university where we teach. Um, there's no institutional relationship between the press and the university. Um, just this internship that we set up, like, I don't know, 10 years, no, eight, nine years ago, I can't remember. Um, and that's been lovely. It's lovely to have the grad students involved. Um, and I mean, inevitably they're learning something from doing the work. I mean, even just reading, you know, helping to read through the submissions, um, seeing how writers present themselves, how they talk about their work in a submission, you know, reading, you know, one after another, seeing what people are doing. Like, I, I think that is an education that I don't have to do too much. It's just, it occurs. And I know because when I was um, doing my PhD, I worked at the Denver Quarterly. And the first year I was there, that's all I was doing was reading the submissions. And it was like extremely illuminating. I felt like I learned so much. Nobody had to explain anything or tell me anything. I just learned it from doing that work. So I think that's happening. But then also Marty um, is really good about doing, he he wants our interns to leave the internship feeling like they've got a much better sense of like what happens in publishing writ large. So he'll have meetings with them where he just goes over one of our contracts, like line by line, page by page, so that they start, because a lot of writers, it's like the first time you see a contract, it's like, you, and especially if you don't have an agent and you're doing small press stuff, you're like, what, I don't know what any of this is. So he's going over it with them um, and talking about what each thing means and what you should look out for and all of like that kind of thing. Um, and uh, he, so Marty has recently, he is the director of a concentration in publishing within the English major at the school where we teach. Um, and so, and this is a new concentration and he's been thinking a lot about how to make this like an intellectually hefty experience for students, um, rather than like any kind of like vocational, it's not a kind of vocational, um, you know, certificate or something. Um, and he does this, he does a lot of things where he asks students to imagine a publishing project, you know, and um, at the end of like two semesters of like talking about like book history and, um, and contemporary publishing and bringing in via zoom, you know, like editors and agents and writers um, from New York and the small presses and stuff. And then he asks students to imagine a project um, and to think about what would go into that, you know? And so I think, um, I can't remember what I started, why I started telling you this, because now it's like gone out of my brain. Um, there's a squirrel on the tree outside doing crazy things. It's very distracting. Um, yeah, I've lost it. Um, but I but I do think Dorothy as an entity has influenced how he thinks about like this DIY kind of vibe about what publishing could be um, is enters into his teaching for sure. It's not just like learning the corporate models or something like that. And certainly, I mean, the way you described them, that those processes and that class are like going over a contract is so empowering, which is kind of, you know, the idea yeah. of that DIY yeah. vibe that people could then go and make their own project or mm -hmm. could feel empowered as writers and editors um, and not be dependent on, you know, the sort of structures that exist, you know, mm -hmm. to, to either accept them or reject them or either support them right. or not support them, but rather would have that kind of um, like information and knowledge and get to feel like if they thought of something, they could do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I realize we're almost at the end. <laughs> of an hour. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking such smart questions. Oh, it's such a, such a pleasure to talk to you and get to hear about Dorothy from, from the, from the inside. <laughs> um, inside the, the Dorothy.